animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come here the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Duncan P. Forge, author of Flying Kai, A Pelican's Tale. With Flying Kai, Forge has spun an inventive yarn starting with a pelican occupying the center of the novel and no shortage of talking animals dotting the landscape. Yeah, you heard me. Lots of talking animals. In fashioning this distinctive narrative, Forgy cultivates themes highlighting the dire importance of protecting the environment and wildlife while noting how climate change has already upended those things. Our pelican hero, Kai, who's restless and sometimes impulsive befitting his adolescence, embarks on an odyssey aiming to travel to the magical mountain, a journey in which he joins forces with a blue-footed booby bird from Baja named Pancho. Along the way, they meet an array of critters, including at a thinly disguised facsimile of SeaWorld, raising some probing questions about captive and performing animals. Also, a tiny bit of trivia, Duncan Forgey played a role in my being named Duncan. We'll likely touch on this, too, as we discuss various aspects of Flying Kai, a Pelican's Tale, and more with its author, Duncan P. Forgey, in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Vegan Evan, Evan, I'm sorry, Vegan Evan, Considered the world's youngest certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. He's 12 years old. Vegan Evan is participating in the animal rights panel presented at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest, returning this year to Perry Harvey Senior Park in Tampa on November 5th, running from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. I interviewed Vegan Evan five years ago, almost to the day as a prelude to his talk at that Veg Fest when he was just seven. Right now, though, let's discuss Flying Kai, a Pelican's Tale, the innovative new book by our first guest today, Duncan P. Forge. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Duncan Forge on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Duncan. Good morning, Duncan. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing good. It's rare that uh, someone says good morning, Duncan, and the other person says good morning, Duncan, back. So I think we should uh, bask in that for a moment. But um, you, know, you know, there there is a third Duncan involved in this this book as well, and that is uh, my nephew, Duncan Forgy, also who did the cool on. illustrations, right? Yes, yes. So there's three Duncans involved in this. Wow. And it's I don't know if we can up the ante. If we, get, if we can get to four by the end of our conversation here, we'll really have something here. But uh, three is pretty impressive already, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations, first of all, on Flying Kites. Really, as I've noted, uh, you know, online and just here in the intro, uh, just an innovative, adventurous book, which I really look forward to discussing with you, and we absolutely will in a moment. But first, let's find out a bit about you and your background. Let's discuss your early years, especially in the way this period shaped your sensibility that will later figure into our conversation about flying Kai. So talk a little bit about your childhood and, and where you grew up and, and how that influenced you. Well, as, as you know, because we grew up together almost, you know, we were different ages, but we, uh, your, your cousin was probably one of my oldest and dearest friends. 
from where we grew up, which was on the, on the California coast, Southern California, in a town uh, known as Newport Beach. Um, and I still use the word town, even though it's no longer that. Um, but we grew up in a, in a Southern California that was absolutely, um, you know, magical in its, its natural setting. Um, that's where I really, really understood what is the importance of nature and children and having the ability to run around freely into, um, in a, a natural setting. Yeah. Um, as, as you probably remember, we had huge migrations of swallows once a year that would come up to the, to the local mission. And, um, and I mean, these six, they traveled 6,000 miles to get there, and, and that has basically been disrupted. We had uh, terns and monarch butterflies and, and that would do these tremendous migrations. And, and Southern California was just as wide open a beautiful, somewhat agricultural at that time, uh, area that gave us, you know, not very far away. We had tarantulas, we had exotic insects, we had rat- snakes of all kinds, including, I don't know if you knew this because it was almost before yours and my time there, that we had uh, rattlesnakes on the the bluffs above the beach. Um, wow. And, yeah, I didn't know that. That, that. that would have changed my behavior considerably if I had known that. But well, uh, yeah, the early residents of Corona del Mar, you know, had to beat the, the, the rattlesnakes away. So yeah, it, wow. It, it, you know, in in one generation, meaning um, you know, uh, but what, by the time that you were young and I was young, and by the time we're now where we are, and it it is completely changed. It's yeah. completely a different place. Well, one thing. Sorry, I didn't go ahead, Duncan. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. No, I was just going to say one one change that I, I didn't even know about the the rattlesnakes. So, that, like you say, that was probably just before at least my time, and maybe it sounds like maybe a bit before yours as well. But but the other thing, which I guess I wasn't fully aware of, that you mentioned a moment before that. So, are you saying the the swallows no longer make their annual migration to San Juan Capistrano? Yeah. St. Joseph's Day is still a celebrated uh, holiday in San Juan Capistrano, uh, but the the you know the extent of the birds and the numbers of birds that do show up um, is is a lot smaller than it used to be. In fact, where you and I used to live, um, I was fortunate enough to have a swimming pool in my in my home, and we used to celebrate it about 24, 48 hours later. The swallows would come to our house because they used the water from our swimming pool to build those little mud uh, nests that they built in the eaves of the houses. Wow. And, um, and so um, so that was a really important day, you know, for us to have the swallows return to our house. So uh, how did well, how did they select your guys's, I mean, I obviously had a pool, but I mean, you know, I mean, it wasn't as common as it is in Florida, but uh, other people had a pool too. So why did the swallows go to your place? Well, I think it was just that, uh, I think they were around and, and uh, you know, they would dive down and, and take up a little bit of water, and, and, and which was used to make their mud, mud nest. Wow. I, I don't think, you know, it, it just was, but it was one of those, uh, what's the word? Is this one of those natural um, uh, phenomenons that, that you see in nature? And I, yeah. It's not a very well said, but, you know, things just happen with nature that, that we can't predict and we can't. You know, but we can sure as heck change it, and we have done um, uh, that to Southern California. Uh, just a little side note: 
my gener- my family goes back six generations in in Southern California, all the way to the you know the Pueblo de Los Angeles and the and the and the uh, uh, you know the uh, Spanish families that own some of the uh, uh, the big ranches and rancheros. Uh, but it's like it's like I I lived in Southern California. It was everything to me. Yeah, and to watch in three generations it change completely has just been you know heartbreaking. And yeah, that's why I'm now sitting on this beautiful island in the. In the Pacific Ocean. Well, we'll definitely get into that because that, that, to me, that's super interesting and it is all part of a piece of what we're talking about now and just the changes that you're, uh, you know, mentioning uh, that, and how rapidly they, they occurred, which is, uh, everything about that is kind of disturbing, including the speed. But, um, but I should say, I guess this is as good a time as any to, to say that, um, you know, we have a bit of trivia or family lore involved, I should say, my family, because as I mentioned in the opening, you played a role in my being named Duncan because um, uh, I had an older, you had, uh, I had an older brother, Gordon, and it turns out, I guess, you had uh, a brother, Gordon, as well, right? Correct. Yeah, so the way I understand it from, from my brother is that when my mom was pregnant with me and they were trying to figure out names if it was a boy, and uh, I think my Gord, my brother Gordon said, "Well, why not name uh, this guy Duncan, which would be in par- <laughs> parallel with my friend Duncan, who's an older brother named Gordon." And I don't know, I don't know if that was the only reason, but it obviously was a, a factor because here I am named Duncan. So uh, yeah. anyway, yeah. I, have you I def- heard the same thing. You know that it, that we were we're related name wise, and I I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and again, like you said, we got another Duncan uh, in the in the flying Kai realm, yeah. and and uh, who knows? Before we're done talking, maybe some other Duncan <laughs> will appear on the scene. But um, <laughs> but this is as good a time as any really to start addressing flying Kai. So um, as I understand it, this book has traveled a long and winding road involving a gestation gestation period of some fifty plus years. Um, so I don't know all the stories and details behind that history, but as a reader, I'm guessing the five decades of of history in one form or another help account for Flying Kai emerging as as a, just like the smooth, inventive triumph. It's it's um, really honed and cohesive saga that, in lesser hands or maybe with less work and fewer drafts, could have really jumped the rails and become kind of a bit, you know, a bit messy or a bit uh, sprawling. But it's um, but it's not, and, and so maybe uh, helpful for this part of the conversation, and again, later on for sure. Can you present like a, just sort of a short synopsis from your standpoint of Flying Kai, like just like an elevator pitch kind of level? Well, basically, I started writing this book in 1969 when I was a senior in college in L.A., um, and and what I never realized, Duncan, was that, that by doing that, you know, that was my... Um, my teenager, uh, Kai is a teenager. He's a young, like you, you said all that at the beginning. And so I had a adolescent, you know, an older adolescent writing the story about an adolescent. And so that gave me everything I needed to do to create this wonderful character and all of his insecurities and all his, you know, his, his, his uh, ability to be impatient and, you know, wanting to know about what's going to happen in life, but not listening to the people that were important to him around him. Yeah, and and I like you say, I carried it with me, and wanting to be a writer, but getting completely um, distracted as a teacher, as as a uh, even in business, I went into I went into real estate for a while, that 
that was a very interesting um, uh, and kind of a difficult job. And, and uh, But anyway, that's not the important part. The important part is flying Kai went with me. And when I got to Hawaii, I had the opportunity to sit back down with the book and really go back over it and really rewrite it. And so what I found, and I, this was not intentional, was that the young, young Duncan uh, was able to write about that aspect of the book. And then the older, wiser Duncan was able to put in, um, you know, some wisdom that an older person would be, would be saying about the, the trials of this young bird. Yeah. Now, now, also, I think it's important to note that it isn't about, it's all about talking animals. It's all about birds, and uh, I mean, there are humans in the story, but they are like shadow figures in the background. They do not carry a, an important role at all, other than just interfering with the life of the animal. Yeah, they're they're kind of intrusive, really. Uh, all, all, yeah. the, all things being equal, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, it's loaded with talking animals, which uh, of course I naturally love. But um, but part of the thing I think that that I guess I was touching on a little bit or trying to. Is that the fact that it extended over to whatever extent you were active with it? Sometimes, obviously, more or less than others over the fifty plus years here that we're talking about. But I think that's also what accounts for, like you say, the the older Duncan working kind of on what the younger Duncan had done, and the sort of depth that there is this. Because I mean, if you just said to someone, "Well, here's a it's a novel, and the main character is a pelican, and there's a lot of talking animals." Well, again, that would that would appeal to me, but a lot of people say, "Well, that's that that doesn't sound like necessarily my cup of tea." But when you get into like the themes that are addressed, and again, the depth that I think could only have come from having coming back to this book re- repeatedly, I'm guessing over those 50 years, or even if it was just those two main points at the beginning and the end, I mean, that lends itself such such additional substance, and it's about a lot more than somebody would have initially thought. Well, and and I thank you for that. And yes, I think I think that's I feel that um, in the book. But one of the things that is so unique is as I went through um, this this journey of becoming a, a published author, and anybody out there who's become a published author author knows what I'm talking about. It's not an easy journey. It's not it's not you know something that just happens. Uh, and and with this book, um, I would be talking to people of, of knowledge in, in the industry, and they would say, "Well, you know, what what is the genre of the book? I mean, what is who are you aiming this book at?" Yeah. And of course, and of course, they would always come to the YA because of the character of of um, uh, you know of Kai. He's sure. a teenager, so it's a YA book. But because it was inspired back fifty years ago by a gentleman uh, named Richard Bach and Jonathan Livingston Siegel, it takes a new life on it because it, it, when you talk to an older person who knows about uh, uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, they're, they light up. They're, they get a smile on their face, and they, they light up, and they say, oh, yeah, I remember that book. Sure. Well, that was, that was the book that inspired this young Duncan to write it. And ironically, and, and this tells you a little bit about me, is that, I can remember being that young Duncan and thinking and looking at the picture of Richard Bach, who was an old man, you know, and to me, he wasn't that old, yeah. as old as I am. But I, I used to look at that picture and go, how can, a, how can an old guy become a writer like that about, you know, something that's so important to us younger people? And so now I've become that, you know, 
same age as as Richard Bach. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to do the same thing in that sense. Well, so so was it stri- pretty much primarily the influence then of, of Richard Bach and Jonathan Livingston? Because I I, I I was curious what spurred the book idea as a twenty year old. I mean, I know you're talking about kind of an adolescent and reflecting at the time when you began, like you were an adolescent, so you're really kind of writing, uh, obviously, largely about yourself and, and some of the related things. But it's still pretty ambitious for an undergrad college kid to say, hey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a novel now. I mean, even an English major or a creative writing student at 20 to think in those terms, I mean, that's, 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 that's unusual. I had a teacher. So many times this story goes back to a, a special teacher. And I had a professor at, at, at SD, and her name was Ann Pierce Kramer. And, and it was during the kind of rebellious period of, of the 60s, and she, had a, she was able to get a class called censorship and so of course being a young you know uh, uh, active person of the 60s i wanted to take it yeah well she she just happened to be a movie movie actress of the 1950s not you know super famous for her acting um she was also but you know she's a beautiful wonderful lady um and um and she was the uh ex-wife of stanley kramer oh wow yeah producer of the world Greatest comedy in my mind. It's a mad, bad, mad, bad world. Yeah. Well, she she took you know she had this class and and um, and at that time I was writing poetry in my when I got bored in my history classes and I was doing I was writing, but I was not a I was not an English major or even a writer in that sense. Yeah. And 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 she gave me an assignment to do a a a, a paper a term paper on anything we wanted to do that dealt with. Um, uh, you know, censorship. So my uh, father, being sort of an intellectual of his his sort, he had a, uh, there were four books uh, and magazines. They were hardbound magazine called Eros by Ralph Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and those books were extremely uh, controversial. Um, uh, some of the first pictures of a black and a white woman uh, without clothes on, you know, posing for beautiful photographs. Some 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 articles that talked about some of the things that were just uh, forbidden in those days. Yeah. So I used those magazines as the basis for my my article. I mean my my term paper. Yeah. And she just went off on it. She just told me she built me up to such a place that I I decided I wanted to be a writer. Wow. Um, and um, you know and how really really fantastic educators can do that for a person. Now of course being my personality. I'm, I delayed it 50 years, which is kind of sad because I kind of think back about if I only would have just dedicated myself in. But, hey, the experiences I've had in those 50 years is making me the kind of writer I am today. Right, and the result is the book that that I hold in my hand now that uh, arguably, at least, just wouldn't be quite the same book. Well, obviously it wouldn't be the same, but I, I mean in terms of probably quite the same caliber Maybe just because there's so much of the older Duncan and the seasoning and wisdom and life experience that went in there that if it had come out much sooner, it would probably stop short of being the book that it is today. That's correct. And and the Jonathan Livingston Siegel is, a, you know, it's a little bit dated because of its, its, you know, the names of the characters and things of that nature. And that's something I had to do when when I got over here was I had to 
uh, make it more contemporary and 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 make it um, and that's where uh, and it ended up beautifully in 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 so many ways because I had uh, some really good people working with me to make sure that I I did it right and um, but it's a long journey to to to. Uh, to be an author of anything. Yeah. Well, this book, this book has certainly traveled a long way. In fact, I got to wondering, uh, just because it might be illuminating in multiple ways, including helping us track various kinds of environmental threats and climate change over multiple decades, in what ways, just at least uh, in broad strokes, does the flying chi of 1969 resemble today's flying chi? Um, I, as a teenager, it always. I mean, he's, he's, you know, teenagers are always, you know, as an educator, um, you know, the one thing I always said was that, you know, kids never change. I mean, a four-year-old is a four-year-old, a six-year-old is a six-year-old, a 15-year-old is a 15-year-old. What changes is the environment around them. Yeah. And that's, and that's what makes we older generations look back at younger people and go, well, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Well, yes, they do, because they're being... They're being the age that they are, you know. I mean, right. Uh, and um, and I think and so, Kai's always going to be Kai. Now, yeah. And, and just interesting because of uh, uh, my influence by John, you know Jonathan Livingston Siegel, um, uh, the, the name his name was not Kai. His name was um, uh, 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 well, let me just. But he, he had a more. Uh, sort of standardized name. Okay. I was secretly hoping you were going to say his name back then was Duncan, but I guess that was too much to hope for. So. <laughs> but, no, he, he he basically was a character of the 1960s, yeah. uh, which was not as sensitive to all the groups of, of, um, of young people that are out there today talking. And, you know, in fact, you're... Your vegan Evan, I just, I've been falling in love with him, and I haven't even met him yet. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know the the young people of today are just so uh, much more uh, blended than some in some ways that we were when we were young. Yeah, and uh, and so uh, but anyway, so those kinds of changes had to take place. Uh, but for the most part, he's the same exact bird. And if I wrote it today, I mean, he'd still be a, a teenager. Yeah, um, and, and and there's not much that changes with 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 young people. Yeah, in my. Well, let me let folks know who might only have tuned in a bit late know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Duncan Forgey, author of Flying Kai, A Pelican's Tale, an inventive new novel with a pelican as its uh, hero, really, essentially, bringing with talking animals while cultivating themes, highlighting the importance of protecting the environment and wildlife. If you have a question for Duncan, that is our guest, Duncan, uh, or like to offer a comment, please call 813 239 9663. You can email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So let's talk a little bit about what I call the pelican in the room. So why is a pelican the hero of your novel? It sounds like that was that was one constant throughout all the iterations over all the decades. Uh, how come? Because of living on the coast and watching pelicans and watching how how Calm and beautiful. They add. They add absolutely. They're they're gorgeous to watch as they they form their their um, what I call in the book trains and and um, uh, you know and they're either in a, in a sort of a half circle or they're in a line or 
Um, and they just cruise, and they just, you know, they're just absolutely one of the most calming uh, scenes anywhere along the, the uh, coastline. And um, I just have always loved pelicans, you know. Yeah. They're, you know, they're kind of big and goofy looking, but no, they're, they're absolutely wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, birds. Yeah. So are there, uh, other than just what you've already mentioned, are there other key, key traits or qualities about pelicans that you thought, well, that's, I mean, it sounds like it's obviously like you're looking around with the Jonathan Livingston seagull thing. Okay, well, seagull's taken. Let me look. But was it always going to be a bird of some kind as opposed to, you know, mammal or some other kind of critter? And, and that made sense because, his, you know, he lived on Anacapa Island off of the Santa Barbara coast. Yeah. Um, I wanted, you know, I needed, I needed someplace for him to travel from and to. And, and there's a, that's one of the um, colonies for brown pelicans. And also, uh, and uh, thank you for asking that, because also there, we had just come through the DDT scares um, as a young person uh, mm. back in the 1960s when the, uh, the poisons were coming down the rivers and the, uh, the brown pelicans were endangered and then, you know, moving towards extinction uh, because their eggs wouldn't hold their, the, uh, the, the young birds inside. So uh, that I think I think you know I hadn't thought about that, Duncan, but I think that was probably what really uh, I wanted to uh, uh, memorialize the pelican for for uh, surviving. Yeah, I, mean, I think they did survive, and yeah. they still have problems. As recent as last uh, August, um, you know, there were some two hundred of them that were uh, found that were emaciated and 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 sick and. And taken to um, uh, hospitals, uh, you know, the uh, International Bird Foundation and places like that, uh, because of uh, possible illness viruses. You know, yeah. they're getting the viruses, um, uh, and um, so it's 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 an ongoing fight for any species. And yeah, the pel- pelican, I just was mine at this, at that particular point in my life. Yeah. Well, no, they are they are they are cool and striking looking. Like you say, they are a bit goofy looking, but there's something super compelling about them at the same yeah. time. So I totally get the uh, get the attraction. So as we've noted, we've been working on this story off and on for 50 years, uh, not constantly, of course, but but overall in sort of broad strokes. Um, so it's clearly a story you believe needs to be told uh, and, and kept needing to be told. Why? Uh, we're growing up. Uh with a psychiatrist in the family and, and, and your brother, brother Gordon, I don't know, you know, but uh, is probably very uh, in tune to this. At a very young age, uh, my psychiatry father took me aside and taught me a word and the meaning empathy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that doesn't, that's not a word that's bounced around a lot of houses in those days, you know, back in the, in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And empathy, obviously, as we all know, means to be able to understand where the other person is feeling and coming from. Uh, so Kai's message is for us to be empathetic of what it is to, to live in mankind's realm. Uh, meaning that that you know, if if I'm a if I'm a bird, and you know, people are shooting BB guns at me, or 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 people are. Or you know, sending dogs after me because I you know they don't like my poop on my my dock, um, or even worse, you know, I'm, they're putting poisons in the in the water to kill me. Uh, you know, we don't 
people don't think about that. Yeah. Know, that's why like I they, that's why there's shadow figures in this book because they're just doing what they do, and and we don't have empathy for the pain that animals feel. One of, one of my stories is is when I was eight, you know, eighteen, and we went fishing. I mean, remember I was the the um, uh, the NRA group that were taught how to shoot guns and how to fish, and 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 um, uh, I caught a fish one uh, on one of our trips, and we were out trying to get uh, the uh, like a, um, a swordfish or marlin or something that make us manly. You know, we were eighteen years old, we wanted to be men, and and I caught a shark, and I I reeled the shark in. I was the only one that was. Uh, uh, that had caught anything that day. And so the, the skipper of the boat, who was also 18, handed me a baseball bat with two big nails, six-inch nails in it. And it said, your catch, your kill. So, of course, like any obedient uh, teenager at the time, I beat this poor fish to death. Mm. And in, in the, at that process, I'll never forget this, Duncan. He stared at me the entire time. You know, just telling me, "Hey, this is not a fair fight. This is not. This is not the way things are supposed to be." Yeah. And I felt, I felt a guilt that day at eighteen uh, that completely changed. You know, my 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 feelings about hunting and fishing and killing and yeah. and all that um, that uh, uh, was really strong. Um, and um, so, anyway, that's that's basically Kai is is me in a right. in a bird body. Saying, you know, let's have some empathy for nature. Let's 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 think about what we're doing to nature and how they re- how they feel when they're injured, hurt, displaced. You know, think about the uh, the developing, and they come in with the huge machines, and they just displace thousands of species. You know, you don't yeah. have to build to cement over it. So yeah, no, it uh, sounds like really uh, given a combination of things. There was always a drive uh, to to get this thing published or finished slash published, and I'm sure there was periods where you, I mean, were, were there per- periods along the journey where you just questioned, like, geez, uh, is this book really gonna happen, or am I just kind of, you know, flirting with something that all these years that's just maybe not gonna quite get there? I mean, what what kind of battle with doubts and stuff did you have? Oh. Huge. Yeah. And any 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 uh, author uh, will tell you the same thing. Um, the uh, and I and I, I'm going to say this, and it, I don't mean this is any 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 bad feeling or anything like that. But the the industry of, of uh, being an author and being published and all that is a very difficult industry to be successful in and sure. to, to enter into. Because it's kind of close. It's close to those people who are already successes. And, yeah. and, uh, and the people who are out there scrambling to try to try to get somebody to read a book is, you know, it's very, very difficult. So I, I'm still doubting and having, having feelings of, of insecurities about the book only because it's, you know, it's, it's just beginning. And yeah. it's only been published six months, you know, well, more than six months. I think it's now eight. And, uh, but we got a, a review from uh, Kirkus Reviews. Right, which is that's, huge. That's huge. Yeah. And so that really, really helped me out. And I really, you know, the whole at my attitude just kind of took another step forward on that. That's great. So, yeah. 
So, yeah, so here you are. You kept going. You were resolute. You kept uh, up against how difficult it is to crack the industry or whatever. You got the book published. It's out. You got a Kirkus review. So, so I think even now you're probably still trying to figure out, like, where, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier in the conversation is, um, you know, wh- wh- where is this book aimed at? And so is it the picture kind of a core audience for Flying Kai, or is there, like in this case, multiple kind of focused uh, audiences that you think can and should be reaching, uh, reached by this book and responding to it? Yeah, I'm going counter counterculture to the to the uh, uh, to what uh, the professionals in the business say because I think it's it's multiple uh, genres and you know obviously it's the YA the Y it's it's there's it's it's clean it's it's not dystopian it doesn't have monsters or evil things in it yeah but yet it's 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 written you know in a challenging manner vocabulary wise I mean I I did make it easy for. A twelve-year-old to read it, but at the same token, the storyline keeps them interested in it. For sure, um, I've gotten any you know anybody that's uh, uh, interested in the ocean. Uh, there's a lot of ocean questions about uh, what is the future of our ocean. Yeah, um, you know, I've I've got um, uh, uh, so I think it's it's multi. Uh, it, it, like I say, it's, it's the eighty-year-olds. I, I ask people my age, who, who, which I'm not quite eighty, but yeah. but I, you know, it's 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 a it's a book that is is entertaining as well as um, um, some of the old fishermen that I used to fish with. With you know, said it was it, it was a eye opener to them. It, you know, knowing that how many fish they killed for no reason. Yeah, um, back when we were young and. Uh, uh, very powerful to them. So yeah, I I just hope that the word gets out. I just hope that more people read it. Uh, education. I think it. You know, I have a um, uh, very dear friend who you know who wrote on the back of the book. You know, Kai's coming of age story is a must read in middle and high school classrooms. Yeah. Uh, and um, and I, because it is challenging and it is, but it is contemporary in the sense of what young people are thinking about. Yeah, no, I think it, I mean, it really does, like you say, kind of unusually, because a, a lot of books, especially these days, it's hard to find an audience, it's hard to get in people's hands, it's hard to get reviews, it's hard to get noticed. But I mean, this one really, uh, unusually, is legitimately for multiple audiences, and it's, you know, classically YA for sure. But I also think older folks, uh, like me, uh, you know, of all different kinds, including distraught about the impact of climate change. I mean, this is going to reach them on a maybe slightly different level than than the the, the YA readers, and um, you know, have kind of a, an important and profound impact on them. So, um, I just think you know, you've got like you know, young folks, old folks, folks in between, and um, the potentially at least could really. You know, read and respond to this uh, to this book. So I guess a lot of it's, um, you know, kind of in the hands of the gods in terms of like things that that's click. Exactly but but, right. but getting a Kirkus review that that that's that's a classic, you know, major leap forward for anybody trying to do what you're doing. Well, it's it's a it's been a, it's been an adventure, and I and I have uh, learned a tremendous amount of things, not only about the 
the book writing industry, but also about the, the book itself and about the, about nature. And any of it, you know, and, and just real quickly, I don't, I don't know, but, it, you know, in my historical writings for Southern California, which I, I write for a, an online newspaper, I've come up with the term the golden age of California. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my golden age, my golden age, and I'm sure somebody could argue with this, but I think it's pretty accurate, goes back to your grandparents and my grandparents, about 19, the year 1900, when it was still an agricultural and a wide open, open spaces, and, and everything was, was the way that nature had it, um, uh, you know, it wanted it to be. And then our parents came along, and they still got to enjoy that. Uh, you and I came along, our generation came along, and we enjoyed it till probably about 1970. Yeah. And in nineteen in nineteen seventy, wide open development and wide open growth, the freeways, you know, we're going from three lane freeways to six lane freeways, you know, and yeah. you know, or whatever. And it just it just was it was just a massive amount and I'm sure that's kinda of why you're where you are and you're doing your your story, you know, your stories about uh, talking animals. Well it's certainly uh, an influence for sure and uh and yeah, I wanted to get into um, some of your relocation, which maybe we'll in a sec. But one thing I wanted to ask about that's it, uh, kind of, an, uh, to me, an important part of the book, I mean, it's kind of a uh, striking passage, kind of, I guess, uh, is when Kai and Poncho happen upon a place that's, uh, as I said at the beginning, kind of a thinly disguised facsimile of SeaWorld. Uh, why was that important for you to include in the book, and, and what is it meant to convey? Um. Well, as children, again, you and I went hand in hand with our parents to see, you know, the actual Sea World that was down there in um, uh, in in Palos Verdes, and we were just fascinated by the the animal, the the the, uh, the fish and the animals and whatever else we saw, and and it got me thinking about uh, you know the lions and tigers in the in the zoos, you know, I mean, we go there. And we get fascinated by the lions and tigers in the zoos as, as young people. Yeah. But really, what what is it like for, you know, for the, the, the animals to be living in, in that environment? Yeah. And when I started writing about the, the, the sea lions and how perfect their coasts were and how, you know, the water never changed temperatures and how they never had to get their own food and how they, they had perfect health care, you know, it just, it just struck a chord that, you know, I mean, these are not, these are pets. These are, you know, these are wonderful pets that we get to enjoy, but from a from a uh, wild animal's point of view, yeah, you know, there's got to be some some something going on inside their head that maybe maybe they enjoy it, maybe that's the best thing for them. But I I kind of question that a little bit. Yeah, no, and one of the things that was really great and again kind of a really distinctive and original was that that Kai or our, our, our Pelican Hero and Poncho the 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 booby bird that are on this kind of odyssey together um are are talking with these uh animals that are at at this kind of version of SeaWorld and and sort of puzzling out like well how how great is that or what's the trade off anyway it was just to me it was just a, among many parts of the book just a really uh striking and 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 kind of provoke provocative element of of Thinking about captive animals, performing animals, and what and what what it's really like for them, and uh, you know something that we talk about a lot on this show, obviously. But uh, but and the, another exa- and another example of us using nature as a as a business tool. Yeah. You know, I mean, we use it's we use it for our benefit. 
you know, we don't use it for nature's benefit. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm done. That's good. That's fine. Okay. So we're getting, unfortunately, kind of close to the end of our time, but there's a few more things I want to address to you. And one of my guesses, is um, what, what, you know, as we try to talk about, as you say, getting this out to different audiences, YA, older folk, people in between, what will success with the book look like to you? I mean, uh, in a perfect world, what impact will Flying Kai have on its readers? I've, I've always been sort of a B kind of, kind of guy. I've never been the A guy that was on a, on a roll and that was, that was famous for his academics or famous for his athletics or famous for anything like that. Yeah. So I don't, I just, I've been a B player. I've always been, you know, good at what I do, but not great, you know. And so to me, the minimum is I just want this to be a B book. I want this to be a successful book that people enjoy and like. The, to become an A player in this, it would probably have to go on film or something like that and, and do something pretty dramatic. Yeah. Um, uh, which it could, and I've had a lot of people mention that, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, putting that in as a, as that's a, a must for success. But success but, is just a, well. Hearing you talk about it, you know, that's success to me. Is this um, is is people are really starting to enjoy it? Yeah. And and after fifty years, that's that's kind of nice to hear. Right. It's time. Like, get rid of people. Uh, come on. I put, <laughs> I put fifty years into this thing. Read this baby. Yeah. But again, I think I think it is the kind of thing that. Uh, momentum will build. Maybe it'll be slow, just because. Again, part of what makes it absolutely, you know, a great read also makes it a little bit distinctive for people that are, again, just uh, you know, facing a barrage of books and reading choices every day. But I think things will start to happen. There'll be another Kirkus-like thing, or some other major review, or somebody else will talk about it, or some other uh, TV thing, or web thing, or whatever. And pretty soon, people say, "Hey, maybe I should check this out." And I just, I just see a, a really maybe slow initially, but a build coming, and uh, people are, you know, starting to read this thing, and then saying to their friends, like, "What would you read recently that you like?" And it's like this, this book, Flying Kind, believe it or not. It, let me tell you about it. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, pretty soon they're reading it too. So. Um, let me ask you too. What does your book, do you think, say to climate change, uh, climate change deniers, or or what do you well, say to them, really? You know, yeah, you know, I'm a historian, so I go. I have history of Southern California, where the Pacific Ocean reached all the way to Nevada. You know, so we're talking, you know, ancient, ancient, ancient history. Yeah. So you know, so that the the climate is always. Changing the climate is always, uh, you know, the Earth is changing. You know, the oceans are, are you know, ice ages versus non-ice ages, and and I can go through a, a thousand things that says, you know, there's there's no climate change, uh, but there is. There always is. Yeah. I think hum, humans exasperate it. I think humans, um, uh, you know. Well, just like we're talking about the, you know, the, the extinction of animals and we're talking about things like that, humans are, are devastating to nature. Yeah. Um, and um, whether, you know, how much the rising oceans are today based upon what we're doing in our dirty, dirty lifestyle, uh, I don't know. I mean, I really honestly don't know, but uh, it's, you know, Mother Nature is going to come and, 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 teach us a lesson and i think she she's 
She's doing that right now. Right. Um, well, even as I was reading Flying Kai, we had, uh, it was around the overlapping the period of, of Hurricane Ian. And of course, there's a, there's a hurricane, not to give too much away, you know, in, in the book. And I just thought, well, this is, this is kind of what exactly what people are talking about. And, you know, I mean, there's always been hurricanes, but I mean, I think everybody's pointing to, uh, warmer waters, different factors, whether it's uh, hurricanes or fires out in uh, the West Coast or elsewhere that, that are significantly different than they were. And there's only so many causes you could point to for why it's as severe or, or dramatic as it is now compared to what it had been. Yeah, and in, and in our short 100-year lifespan, give or take, uh, you know, we have no clue what it was, uh, you know, what climate change is, is really like yeah we see it we think we see it happening and i think it is is happening but uh, uh you know and i'm all for cleaning up the environment there's don't don't get me wrong on that yeah but uh, uh but it's this you know mother nature does what she wants to do right she can't stop it. well so you better you better shape up i think because mother nature yeah. does do exactly what she wants to do so here's a here's a chance to heed some warnings and uh you know, make make yeah, things uh, less less ugly for Mother Nature when she uh, wreaks or whatever her next round of havoc might be. So, Duncan, we have just about reached the end of our time, but we've been speaking with Duncan Forgey. The book is Flying Kai, A Pelican's Tale. Uh, his website is Duncan Forgey, and that's F-O-R-G-E-Y, DuncanForgey.com, so you can get the book there. You can find out more about him and his other work and his writings and stuff. And... Um, Duncan, good luck. I just hope this thing, I think, like I say, it's going to, you know, just be a nice slow build, some momentum will build, and pretty soon, like, you'll see uh, people, you know, in the next aisle or on the beach or somewhere, like, with flying Kai in their hands. So, uh, but, I, ho- I hope so. And, and thank you for your wonderful, kind words. I really do appreciate absolutely it. Absolutely, no. Really, really mean oh. it. That's great. All right. Take care. And also, you're my favorite Duncan I've spoken to on the show. And, and, I, and say hi to the family. Okay. I sure will, man. Okay. All right. Thanks. In a moment, I'll speak with 12-year-old Vegan Evan, considered the world's youngest certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. He'll be appearing at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest November 5th at Perry Harvey Senior Park, participating in the animal rights panel scheduled for 3.30 to 5 p.m. that day. That conversation is coming up in just mere moments. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is a Tom Shalhoub with a piece called Animal Shows. In today's comedy corner, on Talking Animals on WMNF. I like my animal shows, right? You like the animal shows? Guys like animal shows, right? Come on, we work all day, we wanna go home, we wanna watch animals eat other animals. It relaxes us, I don't know why. I've noticed something, I watch these shows all the time though. Don't they always try to make you feel guilty? Just for being human? They give you that human guilt trip at the end of the show. No matter what species of animal it is, they always come in with a deep voice at the end of the show when the sun is setting. The guy's like, the snow leopard has but one natural enemy. Man. Like I'm killing the snow leopard. I don't even know what it is. I saw this the other night. I got home on TV. This is what's on TV. The condor. The condor is flying in slow motion over the Grand Canyon. And the guy with the deep voice is like, the condor used to have the Grand Canyon to himself until the white man came. I'm like, oh, you gotta make it racial, huh? Like the condor cares about that? Like there's some black guy hiking in the Grand Canyon, the condor's like, you're okay, dude. 
a white man I got a problem with. That was Tom Shalhoub in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Animal Shows, taken from his album Overconfident. Now it's time to speak with Vegan Evan, who will be appearing at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest November 5th at Perry Harvey Senior Park, participating in the Animal Rights Panel scheduled that day for 3.30 to 5 p.m. He's 12 years old and he's with us now. This is Vegan Evan on Talking Animals on WM. Good morning, Vegan Evan. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals today. Well, I'm glad I'm here. Cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you're here, too. So you're the world's youngest vegan lifestyle coach and educator, from what I'm told. I am. I'm the only minor with the certification. I had to go up to New York City to get that certification, and it was like, I believe, 50-something hours. Wow. stuff, but... That's really impressive. I was going to ask you about the training. So the training was in New York City, and you had to accumulate 50 hours of, of the training to, to qualify to get your certificate? It might have been just more, just less than that. But okay. But a bunch of presenters that came in. And yeah. We had to read a whole bunch of stuff, but it was worth it. We learned a lot. That's great. So now if someone said, hey, Vegan Evan, I need some coaching with, you know, uh, my my embracing a vegan lifestyle. That you could do that, right? You're you're authorized and certified to do that now, right? I am. I could I could help them in any way they need. That's great. Now, have you have you had any clients of that kind since you got certified? Well, I haven't exactly had clients, but there's a lot of people who have asked me questions. Okay. A lot of questions, and I always try my best to answer them. That's nice. And. Seems like a lot of the questions are about protein and omega threes. I was just going to ask you what the sample questions are, and I'm sure, yeah, almost inevitably, protein's got to be like kind of one of the key questions. So, what yeah. what are what are what are people's concerns about protein when uh, when they ask you those questions? So, for some reason, people seem to think that protein comes from dead animals, which it doesn't. Which is really weird that people think that because yeah. all protein comes. From plants, all protein does. Yeah. And it's the plants from the oxygen, from the soil, from the water. Yeah. They size amino acids with photosynthesis into protein. And that's where all protein comes from. Now, some animals might eat the plants and they get protein. Right. But a lot of it gets digestive and there's fat and cholesterol. The animals have to be hurt. It's a whole big thing, so you could just, if you're worried about protein, then you should be eating plants. Right, you're actually saving some important steps, not to mention saving the animals, by just going directly to the plants for your source of protein. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, so what What are some of the other uh, major questions or most frequent questions that seem to come up when the people ask your uh, help? Uh, people don't seem to, a lot of people don't seem to think that animals can, like, feel emotions and pain. Mm. Like, mainly it's people that don't think fish can feel pain or emotion. Yeah. And just because fish are, like, they're underwater and we can't hear them the same, they have the families and the feelings and the emotions, too. They know, like, 
bad experiences. Like, they try to stay away if there's a big fish that they think is going to eat them. That just shows you that they have a brain. They can think. For sure. Well, they might hurt me. I don't want to do that. They have, like, a whole bunch of different feelings, the same as we do. They can be happy. They can be sad if another fish dies. Yeah, well, I think you said something super important there just a second ago when you said, just like we do. Because I think so many people don't make the comparison. And if they did, they would really kind of think just inherently differently about things, right? A hundred percent. Because, look, if if one of us weren't a human, if, let's say, we were a cow, and that's just the body we were born into. Yeah. It was a cow. And then we had to go through being raised and, like, being fattened up and having your death date already decided on the day of your birth. I feel like if people could just, like, understand, like, just what that feels like, just have empathy and think about what those animals were going through. Yeah. They were the animals. The whole world would be different. That's for sure. Well, tell me a little bit, just so we don't run out of time, tell me a little bit about what you'll be saying when you speak on the animal rights panel at the Tampa Bay Veg Fest coming up. What, what, can you give me a little sense of what you'll be talking about? I'm really, really excited about the Tampa Bay Veg Fest. Yeah. It's been one of my favorite Veg Fests for the longest time. I've been speaking there ever since, like, since I can remember. Yeah. I, I love the Veg Fest. There's always been so many awesome speakers and vendors and amazing, amazing food. Yeah. I was really upset when they weren't, they weren't doing the, food, the Veg Fest for a, a few years due to, I believe, COVID. And right. Other- yeah, they had to stop for a couple of years, which is too bad, but everybody's excited that it's coming back this year. They're back now. They're back now. Yeah. And I'm really, really excited to be on this animal rights panel. Yeah. And, and any indication, any uh, little sneak preview you can give us about what you might be talking about that day? Well, I'm going to be talking mainly about activism. Okay. And ways that you can get active just through your everyday life, that you don't have to be in some special organization or anything. You Just through your ordinary life, you can do stuff. That's great. Someone that is looking at, like, a dairy option in the grocery store, just say, well, did you see they got the new so-and-so brand that's non-dairy? Or, like, if you see someone looking at the vegan stuff, say, oh, are you, like, doing any plant-based stuff? Or Yeah. So, uh, Vegan Evan, I'm so sorry. We're just about at the end of our time, but I really want to thank you. I want to remind people that you'll be at Tampa Bay Veg Fest speaking, and you can find Vegan Evan at veganevan.com and on social media pages, including uh, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much, Vegan Evan.